So not too long ago, we were uh, uh, at, our, at our house. We had our little nephew, James, there, and we were putting together a puzzle, and it was one of those really big, um, big-pieced kid puzzles, you know, where each piece is humongous, and there's maybe only 15 or 20 pieces, and it's really big. You've got to put it out on the floor. And it was this scene of the Garden of Eden, all these colorful animals, and Adam and Eve are there, and so James is putting this puzzle together and it's slowly coming together and then as as it kind of comes comes to completion and he puts the last few pieces in he looks down at it and he goes thou naked (laughs) (laughs) and he wasn't wrong but it was rated g naked you know this is like you know how kids puzzles are this wasn't like a michelangelo puzzle this was like a you know strategically placed foliage kids puzzle and um as it all came together, it was hilarious just to see him be like, wow, I see how this is all fitting together. In the summer, we've been going through various Proverbs. I've been going through most of the Proverbs kind of at the, the first few chapters. And, they, and the thing with Proverbs is they're not just like short little ancient tweets that you just consume really quickly like a fortune cookie. And you're like, okay, got it. Proverbs is wisdom literature that's written in such a way that these little teachings, they culminate. And no one proverb gives you the whole picture on any subject in life. And so the way that the proverbs are constructed is that way. So if I just pull one out and put it on my fridge and say, that's my life verse, that's how life works, and then life doesn't work that way, I'm going to have a crisis of faith. Or if I look at a particular proverb and say that's that's how things are in this particular on this particular subject, and then life is the opposite, I'm going to think I found a contradiction in the Bible. Or if I read Proverbs, you know, for example, today our text is Proverbs chapter 12. I'm going to read the first three verses. But if you were to read through Proverbs 12, you're going to find it's basically teaching that, you know, uh, a wise person will live with you know thoughtful ethical choices. It's a good way of avoiding problems. But then if you read Chapter 16, you'll find it says, well, you can do all of those things and you can still be up to your eyeballs in problems because the world is broken. You see, unless we understand that Proverbs are to be understood cumulatively, we're going to think we've found contradictions in the Bible. There's some sort of a problem. But what, what the literature is actually asking us, provoking us to do is to meditate on them, wrestle with them, be willing to have our motives revealed by them, as Christians consider how Christ has fulfilled them and rely on the Spirit to renew our hearts so we can be guided by them. And before I read these three verses here in Proverbs 12, I want to make a mention of something that I think is an important distinction, and I always do this. For those who are with us today who um, may be exploring Christian faith and, you're, and you've not yet placed your faith in Christ and you've got a lot of questions about it, it's important for you to know before I get into this wisdom literature that Christians, we don't obey the word of God and walk in the ways of God, right, and grapple with these proverbs, these teachings of God, in the hopes that God will accept us. We are doing all those things, we are doing all those things from pleasure and not for payment. We are, you know, by God's grace already accepted. And it's, that's an important uh, distinction for you to understand because what God's grace is for you that's what the gospel is. But being transformed by God's grace, that's what the gospel does. 
And so as we gather as the church, already accepted because of the grace of God, we desire that the same grace that saved us would do renewal in us. And so we come to texts like this and books like Proverbs so that we can grow in our imitation of Christ by God's grace. So Proverbs chapter 12, the first three verses. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A man obtained, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. This is God's word. Now, as Christians, we're not immune from hardship, right? God's given us his word so that as we're led by his word, we don't bring hardship on ourselves by naively giving into sinful impulses that are within us. And by God's wisdom, we can navigate through hardship that's being brought into our lives by the brokenness of this world around us. And as we look at these three verses, they say some pretty striking things. And so as I unpack them, make, make this comment, help you understand how these proverbs are constructed. In Hebrew poetry, which this is, it's, it's called parallelism, where you take these two statements, you put them close together, they're very strong, they kind of modify each other, and they, sometimes they expound on each other. But the point is, the language is imaginative. Hebrew is an imaginative language. As you're listening to it, it's supposed to conjure up pictures in your mind. And so it uses really, really stark imagery. So if you look at verse 1, verse 1 says that, you know, to love discipline, right? And, and, and to love discipline is to be happy when you're being corrected. So there's an image. Okay, it's like, I love that. Thank you very much for pointing out how I'm wrong. You know how we all love correction. Uh, so to love discipline is that. And it's contrasted with this other expression, to hate correction. Love and hate. And we want to notice this because um, there's lots of day-to-day applications with, um, with the loving discipline and the hating. We could go on all day about applications for how to love discipline and, and correction, whether it's whether you're a child and you're living in the home and it's the correction of a parent, the wise guidance of a parent correction, whether it's relational correction, where a friend sits you down over coffee and, and with nervousness they say to you, can I share something with you? As they say a very uncomfortable thing, a way in which you've been selfish or un- unthoughtful or self-absorbed and they're like trepidatiously trying to find a way to correct, correct a way in which you've not been loving and caring. You can think about lots of relational application if you're married. There's scores of it, right? Opportunities where our spouses, because they're the closest people to us in our, in our world, they can be like, babe, can I just share this thing with you? Right? Vocationally, in terms of business uh, and ethics, you can think about correction, how the wise guidance of the Word of God would navigate and correct the way that we handle our business affairs in a way that's, what, that's ethical and loving and caring and with integrity. And so there's lots of applications, but what I want to draw your attention to is it's, it's, it's talking about a knowledge and wisdom, a way that you approach life, and it's using very emotive language, loving and hating. And it's using that, 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 that contrast of you either love it or you hate it, because what that makes you think, loving and hating, using that language, is it makes you realize that being a wise person is not flowing predominantly from what you think. It's flowing 
predominantly from what you love, your appetite. Because whatever it is that you've got a hankering for, your mind can justify that no problem. And so to be a wise person who makes wise choices as the children of God, what, what Proverbs, and I've said this many times already, so this isn't new what I'm saying now, but I'm, I'm repeating it because, again, you're going to find it all throughout Proverbs, this language of loving and hating. Wisdom is a woman in Proverbs, and the depiction is she is saying, will you love me? Love me, pursue me, chase after me. What is the appetite of your heart? Because the wise choices are long, long down the road from what your heart is actually, what your heart is actually wanting. And so you get this, this language. And so what we learn here is that a wise person wants what's right. And a stupid person thinks that whatever they happen to want is right. That's two very different things. To want what's right and just assume that the fact that you want it means it's right. And I don't know if there's anything more offensive in 2019 than to say to somebody, you're wrong. That desire is wrong. What you want is wrong. Is there anything more polarizing in 2019 than to be confronted with that? And yet what this text gives us is it's very striking. So that's why I said Proverbs just aren't ancient tweets. We're not just supposed to be like, oh yeah, okay, I love wisdom, love direction, okay, move on with my life. We'd be like, well, wait a minute. What capacity do I have to have a desire for something and love something and want it and then have God's word challenge me and say that that's actually wrong? A wise person wants what's right. The stupid person thinks that whatever they happen to want is right. And this word stupid, which all the kids are like, he said a bad word. Because there's an interesting thing with children, right? If he's stupid and shut up, those are the two swear words of children. You're not, and they're like, the preacher just said both. I'm, I'm explaining things, children. I'm not explaining. This word stupid, it only shows up in Proverbs twice, here and in Proverbs 30. It only shows up twice. And, and it doesn't mean what we think it means. Because when we say, I'm sorry, let me, let me say that clearer. It means more than we think it means. It, it does mean that, but it means more. Okay. When we say a person is stupid, we mean they don't have any intellect. That's not what this means. It's not talking about intellect. This word stupid in the Hebrew is ba'ar, and it, it, and it could also be translated brutish. And in fact, some of your um, English translations, when I was reading it, it might have said that. It might not have said a stupid person. It might have said a brutish person. And later in Proverbs 30, when he uses it again, he says, I'm too, I'm too brutish to be a man. And he's, he's like, it's, Solomon's calling himself beast boy. He's like, I'm, I'm just being led and driven around like an animal. So this stupid person is, like a, is beast-like. They're just driven around by their impulses all the time. They're driven around by their natural interests and whatever they happen to have a hankering for, and they're like, well, this is what I want, therefore it's right. How could it be wrong? I want it. That's the conversation. That's a strong conversation in our culture. It's polarizing and not popular whatsoever for me to be even speaking like this. But this is, this is the challenge of this proverb. If I'm going to be a wise person, I've got to love discipline. So that's terrifying and difficult. We'll unpack that in a minute. But also... The, I, if I don't love the wisdom, then I'm just brutish. I just kind of assume that whatever I want is right and good and true because I want it. And uh, 
you know, like the animal kingdom. We watch uh, these, Nigel and I like to watch these shows, um, One Earth or any nature kind of shows on Netflix. We love them. The, the, the cinematography is mind-boggling. I don't know how they get it. It's fantastic as they dial into nature and how it works. It's incredible. And you, and you see it playing out, this, this, this brutish kind of just impulse-driven life all throughout these, these documentaries. Nigel has a great uh, David Attenborough uh, impression. Uh, you know, he always does it, and I laugh every time as we're watching the show, and, and Nigel will just turn to me when a, this new creature comes on the screen, and Nigel will say, Nigel will say, um, this is a very rare species. There's only seven in the world. <laughs> now there are six. <laughs> every time. Did I do it okay? Okay, good. This is better, but anyway. It's brutish. I'm hungry, I want this, I have it. Proverbs says, you know, there's a wiser way to live than to be driven around by your impulses and to assume that just because you have the impulse, that the impulse is right and good and true. But now that begs the next question, we've got to zoom out. According to whose standard? Wrong, be disciplined, because if you're going to love discipline and correction, which a wise person does, if you're going to love it, that implies you're confessing that you're wrong. So that begs the question, wrong on the basis of what? Wrong according to who, right? If there is no God, nobody can climb up into his throne and claim universal truth. They're really just going through life based on consensus. They're really not going through life with a sense of absolute morals like there is an absolute right and wrong. If there is no God, then all you're left with is, I like this and I don't like that. I like the way that we, we, we relate uh, to women in this uh, particular uh, context, in this particular country, and I don't like the way we relate to women in that context, in that particular country. So if there is no God, on what basis should any of us get on a plane and fly across the pond and go to a place where we don't think women are, 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 are treated in a way that they should be treated with dignity and love and respect in the way that we would define it, on what basis do we fly on the plane and go over there and say to an entire culture, because please keep in mind, please, Canadians and Americans who are listening to this, there's only like 300, you know, and 80 million of us, and there's 7 billion other people in the world, and on what basis, if there's no God, should we get on a plane, fly somewhere else, and say, hey, we've got human rights issues with what's going on here? On what basis can we say that is absolutely, universally, globally wrong. We can't. All we can say is we do not prefer your ethics. We prefer ours. Understand the dilemma of just being beast-like and brutish and, and, and stupid. Because if there is no divine standard, we're stuck with our fluid human ethics. And I'm not saying that they're all terrible and wrong and and debaucherous. I'm saying that if there is no fundamental standard, if there is no God, if there is no divine, we have a problem. And so this proverb prov provokes us to consider that. The wise person will say, well, there's got to be. If something is true, the wise person says, it must be universally true and good for all people in all contexts everywhere. So if something is true and good for all people in all contexts everywhere, who among us has the right to declare what that truth is. Who's going to raise their hand and say, I'll write that law that should be right for all people in all contexts and all cultures everywhere globally for all time? Who's going to raise their hand and be that person? 
The answer is nobody because the answer is there must be a divine standard. I was on holidays uh, two weeks ago. One of the things I did on holidays was I finished our shed in the backyard. And in order to do that, I had to cut some wood. And then in order to cut the wood, there's two ways to do that. Eyeball construction or you measure it. And when you measure it, you measure it against a standard. And so I measure it against a standard, the universal standard of what feet and inches is, and I, and I cut it according to the standard. And then you know what I did when I had to cut the next board? I measured it again against the standard. I didn't go, well, I cut the first one, so why don't we just take this one and cut the next one, and cut the next one, and cut the next one? Because by the time you get to the end, you're not even close to the standard. And so Proverbs says to us, there is a standard, but none of us are qualified to declare what it is. So it's got to be divine. The wise person will bend their knee to that. And so, and so we all, uh, as children of God, saved by God's grace, desire the wise guidance of his word, of his grace. And so we allow this to inform our hearts and our lives. Here's the second verse. The second verse says that a good person obtains favor from the Lord, but the Lord condemns those who devise wicked schemes. Okay, so there's a huge invitation here. And the invitation here, and really throughout all of Proverbs, is turn to the one who created you so he can recreate you. The invitation is turn toward God and have him reform your desires, and that is wise. Turn away from God and just be driven by your own desires, and that is brutish. So we're given this picture of a good person. Again, whose standard of good? Right? It's got to be this divine standard of good, which of course right, gives us a huge problem. Because when I was studying this verse, Hebrew commentators were saying, notice the contrast between the good person that finds favor with God and then notice the, uh, the wicked person, why God judges them. And the contrast is the wicked person is scheming and devising. So if the, if the wicked person in their heart and their mind and their thoughts and their deeds is scheming, then in order to be considered good, your thought and your hearts and your minds and your actions have to be pure. Now there is a problem right there, because I don't know about you, but that does not describe me. I want to be that. I'm desiring to be that. More and more by God's grace, I'm trusting that I am increasingly becoming that. But I'm not actually that. I'm not pure in thought, word, and deed. You are not pure in thought, word, and deed. If, that, if, if you're offended by that, that's probably good and helpful for your soul. If you came in and you're like, no, preacher, no, you don't understand. I've been a Christian for a long time. I am pure in thought, and word, and deed. I'm righteous. Well, you probably have a lousy definition of righteousness. You probably have a very low bar for righteousness because the standard for righteousness is Jesus Christ. And unless you're willing to say, when you look in the mirror, your thoughts, words, and deeds are that of Jesus Christ, you're not righteous by the standard. So this, this proverb gives us a problem. And maybe you're here today and you're, and you're not a Christian and you're like, this is exactly why I'm not a Christian. What a, what a, what a cosmic guilt trip. Oh my goodness. Stay with me. Stay with me. Because in religion, the idea is, you see, in religion, the idea is the sermon here, it would turn, and it would be like, do you see that? A good person gets favor from God, the wicked person gets judged by God, so be a good person, the word of the Lord, let's all go home. 
Hold on a second. You see, we, as Christians, we are saved by God's grace, by Christ's perfection and not our progress. That's what saves us. You were saved apart from being good. That's the entire book of Galatians. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It does, that Romans 5 does not say, while we were sinners, but then we stopped being sinners, and then we became good because good people obtained favor from the Lord, then Christ died for us. That's not what the text says. We were saved apart from being good. Therefore, we desire now to be good, by God's definition of good, precisely because that is to be recreated in the image of our original creation. We are desiring to re- reflect and bear the family resemblance and be, and, be like, and be like our God. We are already accepted, and so we desire this. Now, the text is provoking us to confess that we're not good. It's provoking us to see we need the loving mercy of a God who is good. This text is provoking us to consider that what we need is somebody to be perfectly good for us. So for those of you here today, considering the, the God of the Bible, considering Jesus, here's what you need to understand. Everything that God required in his law, he provided for you in his gospel. Jesus Christ is this good man. Jesus Christ met this good standard. Jesus Christ obtained this favor. And by grace, he has given this favor to you. He, uh, he has um, given his righteous record to you. And so notice that the, the next part that says, well, when God is condemning those who divide wicked schemes. Now, on the surface, wicked schemes is really strong language, and it's very easy for you to just read that Proverbs and go, wicked schemes? I don't devise any wicked schemes. Moving right along. This verse doesn't even apply to me. I don't even know why Paul even bothered preaching on it. Wicked schemes? What are we, witches? Do we have cauldrons? Who's devising wicked schemes? I don't have an evil lair. Where's your sister? She's devising wicked schemes. She's in a room. (laughs) That's not... Just get that out of your mind. What does this mean? Now, if you meditate on wicked schemes, if you meditate, if you read, if if your person is reading through the Bible regularly with your family, you're going to be able to think of things that that fall into the category of wicked schemes, whether it's unethical business practices, right? You're taking advantage of people because your heart is motivated by greed. So if you could pay somebody a dollar a day, you would, okay? Wicked scheme. Illicit sex, right? You cheat on your spouse or you're not married and you say, hey, uh, it should be a, uh, you know, uh, anything goes in terms of sexuality and what God says about uh, sex doesn't matter. And so I'm going to scheme around and away around, you know, this ethic. Or whether it's destroying somebody's reputation at school because you feel inferior and so you gossip about them so that, so that next thing you know, uh, you know, people are orient, oriented toward you more. And so you've, you've devised a wicked scheme to make, to ostracize that person so you can feel better about yourself. Or maybe it's at the office and you've devised some wicked scheme of moving up through the ranks. And so you're jockeying for position. You get involved in these weird political office games. And it's kind of like a game of corporate survivor where you're scheming around so that when it's time for the promotion, you know, you're the one that gets it. When it's time for, you know, these, we can think of ways that we can scheme. But I want to pull you back to the ultimate wicked scheme. I want you to see how, because even as I was giving those examples, you may say, I still don't see myself in this sermon. Let's go underneath to the original wicked scheme. 
That's like the undercurrent, like the undertow in an ocean that's the constant pull and drive under every scheme. The original one. Genesis 3, the original wicked scheme. What was it? Genesis 3, we find the temptation from the devil is this. Set up your life like your God. And in doing so, reject God. Now, all of us, starting with this preacher, fall into moments and seasons of our lives where we set our life up like we're God. We live with indifference to God. We can do it. We have done it. Right? Think back to Genesis 3. The devil casts doubt about God's goodness, his generosity, and his wisdom. And then he goes, did God really say that? I mean, I see you looking at this fruit. I see you've got an appetite for it. You want it. I mean, if you want it, it can't be wrong. Why would a loving God give you a desire for something that you don't want? See, the ultimate scheme is just relate to everything like your God. And if it doesn't fit in your little box, throw it away. And if you happen to read the Bible and something offends your ethic, toss it. Just live by your ethic. If you come in here on a Sunday morning and the preacher preaches something that you don't like, leave. There's a million churches. Send them an email. Text them. 140 characters or less. I'm leaving this community. I'm going to that one. Simple. Easiest thing. The ultimate wicked scheme. Is God really that good? I don't know. I don't know if I have an appetite for that. I got an appetite for this. That's Genesis 3. Can God really be that good? Can he really be that wise? And here we are in Proverbs 12. And the brutish person, the beast-like person, right? they go, I have an appetite for this. Did God really say that's wrong? I know God's word guides me in this way, but maybe it doesn't matter. That's the ultimate wicked scheme under all scheme. But it says that a good person obtains favor from the Lord. Church, Jesus Christ, he is the one who was good by God's standard. And he lived the perfectly good life that you and I are not living. And he died an atoning death to take away our sin and de defeat the finality of our death. And Jesus Christ rose on the third day. And because he was raised, you and I united to him by grace. We will be raised and Jesus Christ left nothing undone. So you see how it says a good person obtains favor from the Lord? You have God's favor because of Christ's perfection, not this week's progress. Therefore, let the scandal of that grace melt your heart and drive you to desire to live to the glory of the one who has done it all for you, who has met the requirement of this law and the goodness of his gospel. The wisest thing you can do is desire the loving correction of God and imitate the one who saved you in grace. And the most beast-like thing you can do is reject the correction of God and turn from the one who saved you in grace. We go to verse 3 as we close. This is closing number 1, by, by the way. I have four closings. Okay, verse number 3. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. And so we've given this other image, and it's actually the image of a tree, a root not moving. So all throughout Proverbs, there's the imagery of trees. It shows up all the time, and it shows up again here. It says, the wicked, they won't be established. That means that's like the solid, established oak tree. But the root of the righteous 
they'll never be moved. What's this picture about? Because we seem to be able to look out around in the world and go, something's wrong with this proverb. I seem to see lots of people who seem to be living wickedly. Uh, you know, uh, they are unethical and they don't care about people and they step on people's backs to advance in the world. And they're doing quite well. They're healthy and wealthy. And by all appearances, they'll probably die. Well, they won't die healthy because nobody dies healthy. Meditate on that. That was very deep. I, uh, this is why I should stick to my notes or I say things like that. Okay, nobody dies healthy, but they're going to die wealthy. It happens all the time. And you can look at verses like this and say, I don't know if this really makes sense. Well, this verse isn't saying that those who reject God won't have prosperity or security temporarily. It's saying they have no security eternally. You see, Proverbs is a book that is constantly trying to dial us out of the temporal. Solomon, who's the philosopher who wrote it, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember we went through that? Twelve chapters of him trying to find meaning in his life and, and dialing us out of the temporal to think about the eternal. Because if this life right here and right now is the shortest part of our existence, then this proverb has a profound impact. You see, the wicked might be enjoying health today, we will enjoy health forever. They might be enjoying prosperity today, but we are going to enjoy it forever. They might be enjoying sunsets and the beach and the glory of, you know, the in ingenuity of, of humanity today, but we will be enjoying the ingenuity, the ingenuity of God's creative purposes in us and, land and, and landscapes and sunsets forever. Because this text dials us out of the temporal and, and, and to consider the eternal. The righteous, the root of the righteous will never be moved. No one is ultimately established by wickedness. You know, when I uh, was watching uh, this comedian one time, and he was talking about getting older, and he's on his lawn, and he's working on his lawn, and he's got his jogging suit on, and he's talking about his dad bod. And his body doesn't work the way it used to. And as he's standing out there in his glorious dad bod, this, this guy jogs by. And he's like a specimen. His body's like out of a science textbook. He's like a Greek god. His sweat is glistening in the sun. And this guy stands there in his jogging suit and his dad bod. And he looks at this guy go jog by. And he's like, wow. And then he yells out to him, it's not working. You're going to die just like me yells down the street to the guy. And he's not wrong. The Proverbs is that kind of thing. It gets us to think about the goodness of grace, the goodness of Jesus Christ, what we have been given, the implications of what we have been given. You know, because the worst thing that could happen to you is death. But for us, united to Christ, there's no sting in death. And that's why this proverb says, the wicked are not ultimately established. Big house, big car, big teeth, who cares? In the end, the root of the righteous will not be moved. And it's not because we're better people, by the way, because again, for those of you here considering Christian faith, go, I knew it, those Christians think they're better than everybody else. No, no, you don't understand. We're all wicked. I'm wicked, this whole church is wicked, we're all wicked, but in Jesus Christ we're declared righteous. 
We are declared righteous. We are declared blameless. We stand before God, and God says, on the basis of what Jesus has done, we do not, we in the end are not going to get what we deserve. In the end, we're going to get what Jesus deserves. And that is why we desire to live to the glory of God, to live loving and gracious and lives of service. We curve out from ourselves and give our lives away because we understand grace and what we have been given. That's what motivates it, what drives it. The gospel is liberating because it frees us from the instability of life's circumstances and the futility, the futility of fragile joy right? Because our joy is tethered to shifting unpredictability in life and in circumstance, but the root of the righteous will never move. It doesn't mean we're better than our neighbors. We're not better than our neighbors. We're forgiven. We're not better than anyone. We rest in God's great grace, and it gives us great humility and confidence to love and to share the gospel, the hope of what we have found. And so this day of rest, you know, it's not just a command of God, it's a gift of God, because God's not a cosmic narcissist who needs us to come to church to tell him how great he is. We need to come here so our hearts and our minds can be recalibrated out of our beast-like, animalistic desire, just kind of live our life with our heads stuck in the dirt, and we get to, we got to get curved back out so we can be swept out of our smallness, back up into his greatness, and pulled out of the worry and the stress that comes associated with thinking that this life is all that there is. Jesus dazzled his listeners with his wisdom. Jesus claimed to be greater than Solomon and with, it, with ultimate wisdom. And Jesus personified this wisdom. And so to wonder and worship God, it's the beginning of wisdom. So that when God's word comes to us and it corrects us, saying, live like this, our hearts, saved by his scandalous grace, respond, I want this. Jesus Christ is righteous by nature. Church, you're declared righteous by grace, and the root of the righteous will never be moved. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your goodness towards us. Would you continue what you have begun in our hearts and our lives, that we would live in wonder and worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen.